Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another Safe at Home episode of Totally 80s. And since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, and email us your comments and show ideas at podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our beautiful faces, you can catch this episode on video, as well as on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out. And speaking of beautiful faces, joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes. Hello. <laughs> oh, I'm going to take that compliment, and I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna dine out on that for another month or so. Ah, well, you know, when we're in quarantine, we got to take all the compliments we can get. I'm so grateful for the human interaction, especially because... It's Pride Month. Yes. So, it you know, it's kind of not the Pride Month we have always had. It's in some ways not so celebratory because we, you know, are not taken to the streets of West Hollywood, which I totally would have been doing. But there's still so many great LGBTQ plus artists to talk about from the 80s that were so pioneering. The time, you know, was a dark time in gay history in a lot of ways, but it was also such a fruitful time for music, uh, for gay music. And I'm sure we're going to have wonderful thoughts and joining us to share his thoughts as a special guest today. Songwriter and a, a songwriter musician who you may know from his time with the amazing synth pop band, Book of Love. We are very pleased. Oh, yeah. And John's where, if you're watching this on the YouTube, you can see that John's got the Book of Love t-shirt on. He came dressed to impress. So <laughs> without further ado, let's welcome to our special Pride edition of Totally 80s, none other than Ted Ottaviano. Hello. Hi, there. Hi, John. Hi, Lindsay. Happy Pride to everybody. Happy Pride to you. So I'm excited to speak with both of you guys because I'm sure you have many thoughts about, uh, well, first of all, Ted, I really want to start with you because you were an artist, a very important artist of this of this era of the 80s. So like, describe to us what the climate was at that time. As I mentioned, it was a dark time in queer, queer history. We had the AIDS epidemic, the Reagan administration, and uh, that was you know, a pretty horrible thing. But at the same time, there was a lot of great music flourishing. And uh, one of your songs, Pretty Boys and Pretty Girls, was one of actually the first songs to openly address the AIDS epidemic. So just tell me about what it was like when you were making music at this time. We'll start with that. Wow. Um, well, the AIDS epidemic almost really kicked in in New York City, uh, the mid to late 80s. And, and it was almost like the decade started off with just a new awareness about gay artists. I mean, even even 
prior to the epidemic hitting us, you know, and um, so there were, there was basically artists that had a gay sensibility. I mean, the first artist I think about is, is always like the B-52s. I mean, they were just absolutely so influential and they happened to just encode their music with messages for gay people like that, that we, we understood. It was just, it, it was an amazing set of records that they released. And, um, and then from there, like, you know, there was a series of artists. I mean, we were a synth pop group and in a weird way, like what, we didn't even know we were a gay artist until we started going out on, on the road and noticing we had such a large gay following, which made us start to think why. And, um, and I think the thing that kind of made sense for Book of Love, at least, is that we kind of broke some rules. We didn't really know, know we were. We were just doing what, what felt right for us, but we were breaking rules. And rock and roll had been such a guy thing, like, you know, four guys, like guitars, bass, drums. And here we were a band with three girls and one guy in it. And, and, and that messaging to our fans, they knew there was something different about what, what we were doing. And we weren't playing guitars, we were playing keyboards. What's funny is that some of the other synth pop acts that we've been aligned with who aren't even gay, like had such a huge gay, gay following as well. There was something about this music that spoke to the gay audience. And we opened for Depeche Mode on, like on the Some Great Reward Tour and Black Celebration. And they're adorable guys, but, but they, they were, they're straight, you know what I mean? But they had a huge gay following. And, um, and it, we, we learned a lot from that. I mean, and then ultimately it started leaning towards the, uh, the more politically driven because the AIDS epidemic hit like in the mid eighties and it really devastated at least our community, and we felt the need to speak out about it. Yeah, I, I like what you said about breaking the rules, though, because I, I'm so grateful that I grew up in the 80s, because I have, I mean, I'm a, I'm a straight woman, but I grew up with, like, a very open mind about uh, LGBTQ people from the beginning, because when I started getting into music, all music I liked, and a lot of times I didn't even know if people were gay, but just like, you know, whether it was a band like Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, who were not gay, but were... Um, experimenting with, uh, you know, androgyny and makeup and stuff like that, or someone like Boy George, where it was definitely, you know, more out there, but still, like, if you're a kid, you're maybe not sure, you know, what exactly is coded in the fact that his name is Boy George and he's wearing a dress. Like, I just, there, all the rules, you know, of androgyny, of gender, like, everything was, it was everything goes. And I'm so grateful I grew up during that time. And John, I want to definitely talk to you coming up in the 80s, you being... Um, a gay man, like, how, how was this music for a lifeline? How was this music a lifeline for you? Like when you first, what music did you gravitate towards? We were like, oh my God, this is my tribe. Was it the band that did two tribes? Exactly. <laughs> you know, I get a lot of shit for it, but I, I was the biggest Frankie Goes to Hollywood fan in 1984 and 1985. And I look back now, I was from a small town called Elyria, Ohio, in the sticks. And I'm walking around with, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood. I wouldn't wear the relax shirt. I wore the shirt that was the cover art from relax with the two people <laughs> on it, the very S and M looking thing. And I can't believe I got away with it. Um, but it was, it was really kind of eye opening uh, seeing 
them on TV being just unapologetic about who they were in terms of, you know, uh, Holly and Paul Rutherford. And, you know, there wasn't any of the wink, wink, coy, coy stuff you got from Bowie. There wasn't, you know, even Boy George was like, I, I enjoy a cup of tea. Okay. <laughs> or didn't he say I like it more? I like tea more than sex. I'd rather yeah, have a cup of tea like than that. a shag or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. Sure, Boy George, sure. They walk yeah. the line very well. Well, yeah, I will. George. I will say the one time when I kind of like I very vividly remember the first time I saw Boy George in MTV. My sister and I were fascinated by him. We weren't initially sure what we were seeing. If we were seeing a you know a drag queen, a straight man, a woman, you know, we weren't sure. We didn't care. We just thought it was awesome. But you know, as we got interested in Boy George, we still like you know, like you say, John, he was a little core. I remember like all the teen magazines used to actually like say he was dating the woman who was in the Miss Me Blind video because sometimes they'd be seen snapped by paparazzi together, she'd be on his arm. But I very much remember when I kind of figured it out was when Culture Club won Best New Artist at the Grammys and Boy George gave the speech. Thank you, America, you've got, you've got taste, style, and you know a good drag queen when you see one. <laughs> I was watching the Grammys that year with, in the living room with my parents. I remember both of my parents just cackled, like gasped. Like they thought it was funny. They weren't um, offended or anything, but they just, oh my God, he said it. Like, and they cackled, they whooped it up. And I'm like, what, what's so funny? And then I'm like, oh, okay. I guess that was Boy George's coming out. But like, was he like, it was kind of like we knew, you know, but you know, yeah. like I said, everything you didn't know, like my mom, I remember cause I'm such a big Duran Duran fan. We've done a whole Duran Duran podcast here. I remember when I, had all their posters on my wall. My mom said to me, you know, I hate to break it to you, Lindsay, but I have a feeling like those guys are gay because, you know, look at them, they're wearing lipstick and stuff. And she's like, not that there's anything wrong with that, as they say on Seinfeld, just sort of like, you know, you don't have a chance is what she was saying. And I was like, no, mom, they're not just because they're wearing makeup, just because they're wearing, you know, dyed hair. You know, it was something, I don't know, it's weird. It was like a time that I look back on now that was very open, uh, sexuality wise yet it didn't at the same time it didn't kind of matter like was annie lennox was she a lesbian was she uh, a drag king it didn't matter and i think that was a great way to grow up yeah there was there was a, a way especially with the british acts they they kind of danced around a whole bunch of things because you know you've got phil oakey in the human league who i would put a hand on a bible and say he's part of the tribe and yet He's dating one of the girls in the band. We did a show with with them last year. I was able to finally meet Phil Oki. I, I think he's just amazing. I didn't get gay off of him. Well, let's, I'm go, back, let's go back a little bit to talking about uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood for you, John, because I'm curious what it was about them when there were many, you know, what was it about them that you gravitated towards and how did that maybe open, you know, a whole world? Uh, there were so many things. First of all, I have to admit that Trevor Horn production, number one. I mean, the whole thing was just so cinematic and just so over the top and it just jumped out of your speakers. And then it was, you know, the songs were catchy as hell for the most part. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. I look back now, it's a bit bloated. It could have been a single record. <laughs> uh, but the marketing was so cool. And I think that's why I went into what I do for a living, which is, you know, marketing wow. from all that, all the, the just planned attack on the music press, the print ads, the t-shirts. It was so over, again, just like their music overblown and over orchestrated and just, is it too much? No, it's never too much. And so all those things just kind of collided to make them just really appeal to me. 
Are you aware that the original Relax video, the like told like band one, the Caligula one, was directed by a guy named Bernard Rose, and that Bernard Rose also directed what I think is one of the most important music videos of all time, and definitely of the eighties. He directed Small Town Boy. Small Town Boy. Oh wow. By, by Bronsky B, which I think is so interesting because they are such diametrically opposite end of the spectrum versions of you know a depiction of gay life. Like the Relax video is escapism it's caligula it's you know an 80s version of studio 54 it's pure debauchery pure id and a ton of fun and then the small town boy video is a video about you know someone being disowned by their family about being about gay bashy it's a super grim video there's no performance in it it's not colorful it's quite drab it's well acted it's like a piece of it's like a cinematic masterpiece to me but those are just completely two different depictions of gay life in the eighties. And I think it's fascinating that apparently I've interviewed the guy, Bernard Rose. Apparently the reason why small town boy hired him to do small, uh, right. Blonsky beat hired him to do the small town video is because they saw the relax video and not because they wanted another video that looked like relax. They were just sort of like, Oh, if he's willing to do that, he's going to be willing to do what we want. You know, he's going to have that sensibility. And I'd love to talk about, I don't know if that video impacted any of you guys. When I saw it, it was kind of like my first, you know, being a, a straight girl in the Valley. It was kind of like my first introduction to the idea that that's how that was a sad reality for a lot of gay kids. The, you know, if they lived in a small town, the fact that they would get uh, gay bashed or ostracized. Like, I think that video was so important. I, I, I'm curious, Ted, how your experience was with Bronski beat, because for me in high school, they scared me. Frankie was supposed to scare me. Frankie <laughs> didn't scare me. Bronski beat scared me because it was wow. too real. It was too close to mm. home. Mm. So how did you how did you come about Bronski beat? What did you think of them when they were around? What uh, what I loved about this is where I go with Bronski beat. First off, Small Town Boy is just a, be a beautiful track. It's just and it's but um I just love that they utilized these influences that were pretty much thrown to the side for most rock people. And like they brought, they, they honored disco music, they honored the disco era and so proudly. And um, I, all the prototypes that we grew, that gay, that gay kids grew up with, like were not really that accepted, like to, to the mainstream rock audience. Like, I mean, I know I'm gonna say the four letters and I know John, you're gonna, and ah, but like ABBA, I mean, you know, that was just a major like group for, for gay kids. And um, and Bron that, when I think of Bronski B, I just think that they were so ahead of the curve to just like send up disco music so nicely and so beautifully the way that they did and sort of legitimize like uh, a genre that finally is getting its due, like as, a, mm. as of late, but at that time it hadn't. That's well, really that's really interesting because I wonder what my reaction would have been if uh, Y or uh, I Feel Love had been the first single in Small Town Boy. I probably, honestly, I probably would have embraced him a lot more than I did as a kid. The, na the narrative of Small Town Boy is what really, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
for a small town boy, it scared the crap out of me. I was Ooh. like, oh, I can't be seen with this record in my town. I can't be seen with this T-shirt on. It was it was a very uh, closeted, comp compartmentalizing uh, I was doing as a yeah. kid. Yeah. That's interesting because maybe if you were wearing like the Frankie Say, and it was Say, not Says, if Frankie Say relaxed T-shirt, that wasn't necessarily telegraphing to your peers, I'm gay. But if you were wearing the Age of Consent T-shirt, it probably was. If was anybody knew what that was, even what he said <laughs> one, I'm sure they'd be like, what? Is that another band? Um, but I want to, since I mentioned Boy George and that one was such an important one to me, in general, a term that was thrown around a lot in the 80s was gender bender. And there was Boy George and his buddy Lamal. I'm sorry, his buddy Marilyn. We'll talk about Lamal in a second. There was Boy George, there was his buddy Marilyn, there was Pete Burns from uh, Dead or Alive, who I don't really think gets his due. I was very mad when- um, Thank you, I, I so agree with you. You would, not have, you would not have Stockake and Waterman. You would not have Bananarama having huge hits through their glam period. You would not have uh, Rick Astley. You wouldn't have any of that, Kylie, mm -hmm. throw her in there, without Pete and Dead or Alive leading the way first. And they, actually what's uh, weird is Dead or Alive started off like super goth. Like you can find old videos of them on YouTube where they look like Lords of the New Church or like the birth party or something, a birthday party. And then they went off on this other thing. I was so mad when a few years ago when, when Pete Burns passed away and the Grammys had their in memoriam, they did not have Pete Burns in it. Like, huh? But let's talk a little bit just about that phenomenon of, you know, Boy George was the, mo the most famous of all these people, but like, you know, we had Marilyn, we had Pete Burns, we had uh, Steve Strange and the whole Blitz, uh, Blitz uh, kids club scene. But like, you know, not that this was new in the seventies, of course, oh, there were all these glam rock stars wearing makeup and glitter and stuff, but I feel like it got, maybe it was because of obviously because of MTV, but it got taken to a whole other level with, uh, and I think it was just so like, when I think about how, mainstream boy George was, but boy George had his own Snoopy doll. He had his own Barbie doll. He was on the A team. Like he was about as, it, he, he took it as mainstream in the eighties as the village people did in the seventies. And uh, I just think it was an interesting phenomenon that I, you know, you see bits of it here and there. Now you see like, you know, a, emo kids wearing a little eyeliner or whatever, but like the eighties was a time when just like every, the gender bending was on extreme. What are you? Uh, we, owe our, we owe our career to gender bending because our first song was, was called Boy. And mm -hmm. it was about a, a girl who wishes she was a boy so she could go to gay bars. And um, it was biographical for us. Like, you know, it was about a, a local little gay bar that was in the East Village of Lower Manhattan. And, um, but it just, this idea of, of the gender politics was just be, I was almost beginning to really sort of seep into, you know, like across more than just the major cities. And um, we, we kind of like had no idea that like it would have the impact that it had. I mean, we owe our career to this song. I mean, John, you know it very well. <laughs> very much. Mm -hmm. I I mean, Lindsay, I got to go back to your point. It's I'm shocked to hear you say that it's kind of, gender bending's kind of gone away, knowing what a huge RuPaul's Drag Race fan. Well, it's are. I'm talking about in popular music. I mean, look at the men in the charts. Like when you used to look at the charts in the '80s, you'd have, you know, you'd have Boy George, you'd have Lamal, you'd have 
or Kajagoo. You'd have Duran Duran. You'd have Human League. You'd have Soft Cell. We haven't even talked about the god <laughs> that is Mark Almond yet. But, you know, you'd have these, whether they were gay or straight, but you'd have definitely men who were really pushing the extremes of uh, gender bending and androgyny, let's say, of style. And you also had people like Annie Lennox as well. You know, I just feel, I'm not saying it went away, but yeah, RuPaul's Drag Race is, we could do a whole podcast on that. It would make me very what's, happy. But we're talking about first, 80s music. What's the first thing a queen does when she gets done on Drag Race? She releases her digital single. <laughs> well, actually, since we're speaking of Stock Aikman Waterman and drag queens, we have, let's talk about Divine for a minute because Divine, you think you're a man. Mm -hmm. That's a great song, and that was a Saw song, and like uh, that was my introduction, actually, to the idea of drag. After that probably came RuPaul, but RuPaul's first hit wasn't until the, the 80s, although RuPaul was, the first time RuPaul was ever on MTV was in the Love Shack video by the B-52s and the lavender outfit and the Afro dancing in the shack, so it's all connected. Ted, you're going you're gonna to love me for this one, and you join right in. Not only Divine working with Stock Aiken Waterman, but let's give some props to Bobby O., Bobby Orlando and his production on the early, early Divine stuff and the early Pet Shop Boys stuff. Did oh you like Bobby O, Ted? What's that? Did you like Bobby O's stuff? Um, yes, I did. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, you brought up Pet Shop Boys, which is is such an amazing group. I, I wanted to say, as far as the androgyny, we we have to at least give Grace Jones. Oh yeah, some props because I mean, brilliant record spoke to a gay audience, and she walked that andro androgyny androgyny line like nobody like nobody else. In my opinion, absolutely, absolutely. Well, go on with your Pet Shop Boys thoughts. Um, I love the Pet Shop Boys. They they really have been uh, an artist that I think embeds the gay sensibility in their music like kind of quite like no other you know mm -hmm. and, and they've stayed so consistent and so great over the years so um they're one of my favorites and they I did a song with dusty springfield who's another gay <laughs> yeah i think the fact that they're still making great records 30 years into their career uh, i mean the last three records have been you know, I, I don't want to say because one of my names is Super. I was going to say Super. <laughs> uh, but all right, I'll take the pun. Uh, superlative. I was going to talk about another band, John, that has been going on for like, more than 30 years because it's also connected because, uh, Ted, you mentioned ABBA and you also yeah. mentioned Depeche Mode. So we have to talk about Erasure because Andy Bell and Vince bing, Clark bing, bing. <laughs> checking all the boxes for once. <laughs> Like Erasure, and they have a new record coming out in August that I've heard yeah, is called Neon, exciting. and it's real good. But I mean, God, Vince Clark had his hands in, I mean, Androgyny again with Alison Moyet. I mean, Vince Clark, there was Depeche Mode, and then there was Yaz or Yazoo, and then Erasure. And Andy Bell, is, you know, he's right up there with all the people who we're talking about as being, you know, a real trailblazer. What are your thoughts on uh, Erasure's legacy, which has been, you know, super mainstream? I mean, they've sold millions of records amazing and like um i think i mean andy bell is so impressive i mean his voice transcends and uh the the first track that i when they first started the first track that just set me off was this it wasn't even a single it's called hideaway i don't know if you if you know this song well just beautiful falsetto voice and he spoke to he 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 understood 
a, a gay kid's journey and he really spoke to it. And um, uh, I, I just, I, I love that they've stayed as consistent as Pet Shop Boys over the years and have remained to just be such a force. And he's as flamboyant as Vince's <laughs> <laughs> pulled back and very like in the shadows. I, I just love that they offset each other so well. Vince is a great straight man. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. did an entire album of ABBA songs. I think that might've been in the, in the 90s. ABBA-esque might've ABBA? been a 90s record, but it carried on that tradition that you were speaking of, Ted, of like paying you know, homage to a disco era that was unfairly disparaged. And actually that brings me to a point that's not artist specific. Most, a lot of the conversation we've been having is like, how about this person? How about that person? And there's definitely people on the list I want to talk about. But in 1979, a very homophobic thing happened. It was the disco demolition night in Comiskey Park. This disco thing isn't happening. Our teens were at White Sox Park for a radio station promotion called Anti-Disco. Between games at tonight's doubleheader, a local disc jockey blew up disco records in center field. And a crowd responded by rushing the field. Police moved in. And it took them a considerable amount of time. A bonfire had been built in the middle of center field. Police tried to clear the unruly crowd, pushed them out. Finally got them off the field, although, again, it took a long time, perhaps some arrests. It's hard to tell. Some people appear to be taken into custody. Tail end of the 70s, coming into the 80s, disco which laid the groundwork for a lot of the music in the 80s we're talking about. Disco was, you know, not entirely made by people who were gay or of color, but a lot of people who were gay of color. And so as much as people might say, oh, it's just a funny stunt, you know, I look back on it and see it as a pretty hateful night. And that's why the hate that was aimed at disco, uh, that's where it came from for a lot of people. That's how I see it. So how did that you know, when we're transitioning from the 70s that was ending with um, a genre that had been so popular and so dominant and very LGBTQ driven, getting this huge backlash. And then we come into the 80s, but then we get people like Boy George and we get people like Mark Allman and we get people like the Pet Shop Boys and we get, you know, gay, uh, you know, heroes who are divas like Grace Jones and Madonna and stuff. How did that, how did music rebound from 1979 and disc, the disco backlash. Ted, you were in New York. I don't think it ever went away. I think it just changed names. I think it was just called High Energy. Yeah, dance artists, like uh, as opposed to disco artists. And um, I'm glad that you brought up Madonna because I mean, Madonna and Grace Jones, I mean, they're just for force fields for for the, for the gay audience. And I mean, especially when you're talking about the AIDS epidemic, which really ended up like devastating the New York community. It was really just a handful of artists that really started speaking out publicly. And Madonna had such a huge platform. She did so much to, to further awareness for this disease that was like taking so many of the amazing downtown artists away from us. I mean, so uh, I, I can't like say enough about how much respect I have for her for that. And 
Absolutely. We, we did our part. You know, we like pretty boys and pretty girls, like you mentioned earlier. I mean, it addresses the 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 issue. It, it it's about living in New York in a in a climate of fear. Like, sound familiar? Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and um, and uh, and what each one can do to sort of give back. Like, and uh, it's it's nice that even in our shows to this day, like, it's it still speaks to a, a segment of the gay population that really loved that record at that point, and we we constantly hear how how it affected them and helped them through that period. Boy, oh boy, what's better than knowing that your music can do that. Yeah, I'm curious about one thing. It's just came to mind. So I mentioned the Bronski Beat video, which was directed by a guy named Bernard Rose, who also directed the Relax video. And I interviewed him about both those videos last year when they were both celebrating for Pride Month last year when they were both kind of celebrating their, I guess, 35th anniversary. Oh my God, 35 years they still <laughs> and still so relevant. So anyway, I was talking to him about that. And he was obviously based in, in London. And he was saying that he saw um, LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ, you know, culture going in a very positive direction in the early 80s. You know, when you see, saw the huge success of an artist like Culture Club or like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who were putting it all out there and, you know, it was not coded. It was like, you, you know, it was very pro-gay. And then he talked about how he thought things were going very great and progressing well and then when the aids crisis happened he saw all of that just undone because suddenly now there was this horrible stigma and all of the progress and all of the acceptance and celebration that was happening with these big gay artists that you know things took a different turn and i'm wondering if you you know artistically in terms I think of that's, that's true but it did spawn activism and there and that wasn't really happening up up until that point and um and, and that was that was a positive thing. I, it did it did get people to sort of mobilize and to start really setting the set, setting the message and and sending it forward. But there's yeah. some positives that came out of people needing to actually act up <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 sort of make their voices heard. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess he was more talking about the fact that there were fewer. He this was his observation, and that's why I was asking what you guys thought of it. I agree um, with you. With that, that artists were putting it out there a little bit less. There were, there was, you know, they were toning it down, not, you know, there were obvious exceptions, of course. What I think is kind of ironic is when music in the late eighties started to get super macho and there was all the hair metal coming, yeah. those hair metal dudes were dressing more flamboyantly than Boy George. And I've talked to Rob Halford about this because obviously Rob, Rob Halford is gay, but he was definitely not out in the eighties. He came out in 1998, even though a lot of people kind of so I had sussed it out, but you know, he didn't officially come out to 98. And he says he remembers in the late eighties when there were bands like Motley Crue and Poison and uh, you know, bands like that. He was kind of like, okay, this is kind of strange. Cause you got, you guys aren't, you guys aren't gay, but like yeah. you're looking more feminine than me. And actually I want to talk a bit about Rob Halford because I think, you know, we're, we've obviously been talking a lot about, um, you know, uh, new wave artists, pop artists, I guess. But Rob Halford to me, he is such a pioneer. I mean, even though he wasn't officially out until the 90s, I mean, you know, we all knew. Well, most of us knew. Maybe some of the people in the parking lot of heavy metal parking lot were unaware, but we all knew. And um, what I think is interesting is the whole aesthetic that he, when I interviewed him, the whole aesthetic they had, which they got from 
a legit uh, S&M shop in Soho in London, which I think was called Mr. J's. They bought their stuff at an S&M shop because it was cheaper than buying it like a rock and roll stageware shop. He claims they it wasn't coded. They weren't trying to, you know, there was no secret Tom of Finland message in the way he was dressed. He just thought it looked cool. I'm like, sure, Jan. Or sure, Rob. <laughs> I, love, I love that you brought up Rob Halford because uh, when you say we all knew, I can assure you, Cleveland, Ohio did not know. Because really? Really? I was teased mercilessly for my music, for what I like, Duran Duran, Echo and the Bunnymen, Art, Frag, you know, all that stuff. And you should be listening to Priest, man. You should be listening to Priest. All my high school well, friends. They, they were wrong. Back, Priest yeah. Brad, but, you know. I look back now, I'm like, hey, guys, I remember when you used to rag on me and you used, used Judas Priest as the shining example of heterosexuality. But fun fact, I interviewed him, Rob Halford, recently last year, and he put it out there that he wants to be a judge on a metal-themed episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. Speaking of RuPaul's Perfect. Drag Race, Perfect. I've made this my life's mission. I have emailed the interview to everyone who works at RuPaul's Drag Race. Michelle Visage has tweeted about it, saying she thinks it's a great idea. I have put the feelers out. Rob then went on his Instagram stories and talked about how he wants to be on the show. So I want to take credit right now, preemptively, if it happens. But um, I think this is actually a, a funny, a fun and funny way to kind of open up. We're talking about a lot of artists um, who were openly gay, you know, like um, Erasure, like the Pet Shop Boys, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Bronski Beat. But there were some artists that we know now, like Rob Halford, and looking back, it seems obvious. But there were some that were either closeted or maybe like a boy George, just sort of like being a little vague about it. And I think the cool thing is it didn't really matter. One thing I do want to point out is even in the hypo, hyper macho world of metal, when uh, Rob Halford came out, there was a collective shrug. Like no one gave an F. No one cared. No one burned their you know, their stained class records. No, everyone's still very much on board with Rob Halford. But let's talk about some artists where only later we figured it out. And one of them is Lamal from Kajagugu. I mentioned Lamal earlier. And uh, I think it's funny because I interviewed him recently. And I said, oh, were, were you out when, uh, when you know, I, I was unaware. I know you're out now, but like, were you out in the 80s? And I just didn't know. And he's like, well, I think an idiot, only an idiot would not be able to figure it out. I'm like, I guess I was an idiot because I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought he, you know, he was a heartthrob. And the thing that I thought was really funny is he said he was never closeted. You know, in his personal life, everyone knew that he was gay, but he didn't make it, um, you know, he didn't talk about it in the press because he actually specifically said he didn't want to be like Bronski B. He didn't want to be every interview they did was about him being gay because not everyone, you know, other guys in the band weren't gay. So he didn't want to like make his band a platform. But I think the funny thing he said is I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said he'd got into the, you know, onto the stage and he'd seen the audience, all these young girls who were like holding up signs like, I love you, I heart Lamal, marry me Lamal. And they all had Lamal haircuts. And he said, I just didn't want to break their hearts. He goes, I just didn't want to go on stage and go like, hey girls, guess what? Too bad, <laughs> you know, he didn't want to do that. So, you know, there are other artists that you look back on now and you're like, oh, how did I, how did I not realize that? You know, it was, it was only, around the 80s that it be started becoming more acceptable. Up until the 80s, I mean, like gay people had to signal, they, there was all these weird smoke signals on how to, you know, sort of cope, how to live, how to communicate. And that's what 
the music had to it as well. There was a lot of signaling. There was a, there's no double entendre left anymore in music, but in that era there, there was. And so there was basically, I don't know if it was for, for the fact that people felt more comfortable in the closet or just that it was almost also just the art of that time was just almost like, I know that Book of Love, even though we had such a, like a gay message, we, we thought our message, anyone who felt like they wanted to listen to our message and our music, we wanted them to know that they were welcome and they were, they, they, they were welcome to just come, come on into our show. You could be straight, you could be gay, you could be polka dot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of changed in the 90s. Things got much more like, like politically driven, uh, like probably based on some things like the AIDS epidemic. But um, I kind of, I kind of like, like that someone like a, a boy George was obviously a gay performer, but there was, but his music was so pop and mainstream at the same time. There was something interesting about the fact that it wasn't so on the nose. And there's, there are some other artists like that. I mean, look at REM. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not sure exactly when Michael Stipe came out if he or if he ever literally came out but like um but their music felt like it really was was encoded for a gay audience as well but it spoke to everyone uh, the smiths there is a light that never goes ah. out was <laughs> a lifeline for me in high school i mean that song i, I, I sound exaggerating here but it kind of saved my life how uh, so well, you listen to those lyrics and, you know, when you're a gay kid in high school and you've got a crush on the guy on the football team and you know it's always going to be unrequited at that time. Uh, <laughs> uh, what happens is you listen to that, the lyrics of that in, you know, um, uh, in a dark and underpass, I thought, oh, God, my chances come at last. But then a strange fear gripped me and I just couldn't ask. That sums it up right there. And so, yeah, Ted, you're absolutely right. It doesn't. It, sometimes the not stuff that's not overt affects you the most. Was, oh, Morrissey. Morrissey. That's one thing the '80s did really well. I think that the, they the music walked that line very well, and uh, nothing's every anything that's worth doing is worth overdoing in today's music cli- like uh, climate, of course. And I had a conversation, an interview with Johnny Marr, who is not gay, but um, obviously was the right hand man and, you know, in, just as instrumental to the Smith's success. And I was talking with him about bands that came up around and, and conquered America around that time, kind of the college rock bands from the UK. And we mentioned, you know, again, not bands that are necessarily gay, but had gay audiences. We mentioned um, Joy Division, The Cure, Depeche Mode again. And he said that a band, bands like them, and particularly Morrissey's Persona and the Smiths, they just sort of introduced in America, whether you were gay or straight, a different way to be a guy, that a guy didn't mean you had to be a jock or you had to be super macho, that, you know, someone like a Robert Smith or especially a Morrissey, that it was, or a Martin Gore, that it was okay to be sensitive and it was okay to be have to you know to be emo basically to use the word emo and um, so it's like even though not all of those artists were um, 
were gay, I think a lot of them spoke to young gay boys who were trying, who didn't want to be jocks and didn't want to be tough. And Morrissey definitely led the charge in that. You know what they all have in common, what you just named. They're, they're all on Sire Records. <laughs> really <laughs> interesting. I'm a, I'm a sire artist. I have nothing but positive stuff to say. <laughs> I love those those acts. I mean, I, we've talked about this before where it was kind of like, for me, it was uh, sire rec records and wax tracks. If it was those two things, you knew it had to be good. It was like Smuckers. <laughs> well, there's like, I mean, when we talk about, I mean, like I know, John, you mentioned this a while back that a band like ABBA, as poppy as they were, have has this underbelly of, of melancholy that goes through the music. And as a gay kid, there's no way around the fact, I mean, that you don't really know what, how your life is going to proceed and turn out. And so right. a gay audience understands melancholy, like nobody's business, I'm telling you. And so when you think of someone like Robert Smith or Martin Gore or Morrissey, like they're guys, but they, they had this, this, this understanding and sensitivity and melancholy in the music that this kind of like, I think just lassoed a gay audience and brought them right in. I think Ted, you, you're right to bring up ABBA, even though they were, you know, they had their heyday in the seventies, they did extend into the early eighties and the influence uh, on artists period, but particularly gay audiences as well. Uh, it can't be overstated. There would be no Human League Mark II without ABBA. There would be no Moxette. I mean, <laughs> not because they're both from Stockholm, just the fact there's that pop sensibility with that streak of melancholy. You listen to a song like The Winter Takes It All, it ain't Waterloo. Yeah. Um, you listen to The Visitors, their last record. Uh, or Just take all, all of the, the rhythm instruments and bass off of, Dancing Queen and and give yourself a box of Kleenex because you'll just be in <laughs> I mean the the music is so beautiful and orchestrated and has such a melancholy that runs through it. And if you didn't know I'm an ABBA fan, I think this is no. the time I mentioned <laughs> You don't say you've you've got something so powerful which was a flop really for them, which was really sad because if if it had been more successful, I wonder if it could have changed the course of their career and they would have stayed together. A single like The Day Before You Came, where there's no chorus, it's a drum loop, it's it's this storytelling of this lonely woman and it either has a happy ending some fans think it has a sad ending because someone arrived and ruined her life you know there's all these abba fan forum debates over the song but what, <laughs> what if that song had been a success it was a mature new direction for them and i i like to play what if i know and um <laughs> all i can say is that they stopped at a time where the catalog is pure perfection and isn't that nice that we don't have to talk about it going askew at some point. Um, I did want to mention with Morrissey because I'm late to the party with Morrissey. And um, if you were in a synth pop like group in the '80s, you were all you were doing is like pressing buttons and switching on keyboards, and and then all of a sudden this jangly group came out of England, like called the Smiths, and I was just like, I'm not going to listen to those guitars right now. And so I sort of just got like almost like taken off course and finally like um un had a chance to really discover their music late later and i i totally understand 
I mean, Morrissey gay fans are so, um, they're just, they just love this guy, you know what I mean? And, and, and when you listen to the lyrics, you kind of understand what a lifeline those lyrics were, must have been for a gay kid listening at that yeah. point. I mean, you say what you want about his politics now, but the music is just, you know, amazing. I'm curious, I want to talk more about the idea of melancholy, because I think if you talk to some people and you ask them to, um, you know, to sort of off the top of their head, rattle off what they think gay music is or pride music is, they'll they'll think about these really, you know, over the top, joyous anthems, like It's Raining Men, or, you know, uh, I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross, like disco songs, club songs, dance yeah. songs, upbeat songs. But definitely, I think, you know, people forget that, yeah, the idea of melancholy, I think I haven't really started to talk about it much, but I'm pretty much obsessed with Mark Almond and anything Soft Cell ever did. And a song like Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, or Bed Sitter, or Insecure Me, I mean, those, aren't, those are not happy songs. Tainted Love, even though that was a cover, very, you know, when, you know, not a happy song, a song about being tortured, it's called Tainted Love, for God's sake. So, you know, in general, what are some artists you think, besides uh, the ones, you know, besides the Smiths, I guess, that you you think sort of really expertly tap into that, like, gay angst, I guess, for lack of a better term? Before we move off Mark Allman, I got to give the guy credit for having a number one hit in the UK, uh, duetting with another man, Gene Pitney, on a song called Something's Got a Hold of My Heart. How did they get away with that? Well, how did he get it? They didn't really, but you know, not that it's melancholy per se, but oh my God, the sex store video, the, that is the stuff of legend. I didn't think it existed for decades because it banned and this was a time before the internet and YouTube where you just heard this urban legend that it existed and they denied that it existed. But that is like, it's pretty much like almost like snuff film porn. Actually, when I look at it now, in retrospect, had to be built it up in my head what I thought it was going to be. It's actually not as bad as you think. Like everything Mark Allman did, I think it's just in his voice. His voice is the sound of melancholy in me. He's just a god to me. I think he's the best. Well, I, I, Ted, you you might not even thought of this, but when we talk about melancholy, I wonder what your thoughts are of this. I'm going to put the B-52s bouncing off the satellite oh. track. It, I, amazing stuff on there, like "Ain't That a Shame" by Cindy. She breaks her rainbows is just like the one that got away. I mean, any hardcore B52s fan like just goes crazy for that album. Yeah, and there's a there's a real melancholy in that record. I mean, all roads when we're talking melancholy, we have to go to the B word, which is Bowie. I mean, he taught us all. <laughs> and um, I always think about like just like um, I don't know if you guys saw Hedwig. Like, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, once or twice. Yeah, as a kid, when he's talking about his musical heroes, all the all the guys are like these melancholy rockers, like Bowie and T Rex, and then all the women are these divas, like Cher and Helen Reddy, and like you know, from that period or whatever. And it speaks to what you're saying about like the the gay music. I mean, there's real celebratory music like, and real anthems, but then there's this other darker sort of more like speaks to that sad kid who's in his bedroom thinking like, how am I gonna like get through the next series of years of my life or whatever. So mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like these two Jags or something. That's where I think the Pet Shop Boys succeed so well is they yeah, take they do both. <laughs> great part. 
And and they add that melancholy part where you have a song like Go West in its original form by the village people is this big celebratory song about, you know, gay liberation and moving to San Francisco and starting your life there. And the Pet Shop Boys version has kind of got this minor key thing where it's like, we're going to escape this. We're going to go. We're going to go west. I know. I mean, yeah. and the version of Somewhere is exactly that, too. It's just anthem and, and you're bawling all at the same time. Like crying on the dance floor. Right, totally. <laughs> Dancing with tears in uh, Ultravox. We'll get, we'll get to them all tonight. Yeah, actually, um, I would say probably the song that's the gut punch for me for the Pet Shop Boy song, going back to Dusty Springfield, who was a gay you know, pioneer and icon in her own right, is the one of I done to deserve this. There's just that line where it goes, now I can do what I want to forever and it's like you know he's he's trying to like say he's happy oh i'm free we broke up now i can do whatever i want but he's actually like heartbroken over it was gay too wasn't she yeah she was she absolutely was i don't know how many people knew that at the time and i don't know offhand if she ever officially came out or when she did she you know in the sixth i think it was maybe one of those things that people knew but didn't speak about or whatever but yeah she definitely was a gay icon that way but when we're speaking of melancholy someone that i don't think really gets a credit for being a gay icon he was bisexual but pete shelley oh my god the buzzcocks are so high up there on my list they're my second favorite band of all time after the cure it's the cure and then the buzzcocks and he one thing i didn't notice at the time when i was listening to uh buzzcock songs he never used pronouns every single song he had was about unrequited love john every single song why can't i touch it what do I get? Well, Homo sapiens. Yeah. <laughs> and then he went solo with Homo sapiens. Operator. I, I actually, re- yeah, so I actually remember when I was watching MTV as a kid and, and the uh, Homo sapiens. I actually discovered Pete Shelley solo and then went backwards to the best talk. MTV used to play the Homo sapiens video all the time. And I remember I was watching it and, you know, just enjoying it. And my dad walked in and he was like trying to be all like a know-it-all or educational. And he goes, do you know what homo sapien means? It means human being. And then he walked out of the room. I'm like, all right, thanks, dad. But I think it means other things when Pete sings. But I don't think a lot of people, because of the fact that, you know, um, his lyrics with the, I'm talking more about the Buzzcocks now, which is like, you know, late 70s going into the early 80s. Um, And then he did this stuff solo in the 80s. But I don't think a lot of people really see him as a queer icon because of the fact that it was subtle, but he never used a pronoun. There's not the only songs the Buzzcocks ever did that would mention a girl are the ones that Steve Diggle wrote and sang. And I think, I don't think he gets enough credit for, uh, I just think, I think he kind of created emo to be honest or punk pop. I agree. I think another person that doesn't get enough credit uh, and, just never really broke through in the U.S., and I think that's why, is Joan Armitrading. Um, she was amazing, right? Yeah, beautiful record. Yeah. Uh, and and all that she, stuff with Steve Lillywhite. Like I loved The Key. When I was, I think it was my my 10th grade record was The Key by Joan Armitrading. Yeah. Drop the pilot. And uh, I love it when you call me name. Yeah. A wink and a nod. She was really, really great. We haven't actually talked about as many female artists as we probably should i think a lot of times when people think of of gay artists we think of men and we think of people like george michael and we think about people like uh you know the boy george or whatever but you know let's talk about um some female artists i definitely think we should give credit to wendy and lisa from the revolution i remember yeah. computer blue having 
an effect on me. But are there any other uh, lesbian well, artists? The, or the thing that I thought was interesting is that it was almost more in the early 90s, but Melissa Etheridge and Katie Lang, I mean, it was like the first, I sort of thought that the mainstream audience really supported them as lesbian artists, like in a way that even uh, the gay artists hadn't been supported. It, 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 continued, it continued to evolve, the, the acceptance. And I thought it was amazing, like how their careers felt like almost amplified by their lifestyle, you know? Yeah, and, Indigo Girls, that's like late 80s yes. going into the 90s, yes, definitely exactly. pioneers. Totally. So what, why is it, what is, if you have theories, why is it that seems like lesbian artists or female queer artists seem to be more at the forefront in the 90s as opposed to the 80s? I don't know. That's a good like Yeah, it seemed like, like their time and also music return to more of a folk mm. like was had a resurgence along with the grunge stuff and maybe these artists like kind of fit into that real nicely and i mean indigo girls obviously uh, but i'm not really sure but you know i mean they always used to say that straight men almost would accept a lesbian before they accepted a gay man i don't know if this is true but that was always what we had heard and hmm. if it, it might have followed that rule, you know. Have any of you heard of Carol Pope? Because I only very recently became aware of who she was. And she's one of those people when I found out who she was, I was like, huh? How did I not know who she was? I found out about her like literally two years ago. But in a nutshell, she was in a group called Rough Trade that started in 1975. And they were like, they were lesbians and they were like bondage wear. But they had this hit that was a top 40 hit in Canada, not here in America, but in 1981, they had a hit called High School Confidential, which was a lesbian, very overt, lesbian-themed song. It had a line in it that said, she makes me cream my jeans when she comes my way. Not coded, not, you know, not not subtle there. It was Sounds sexually- like a song. I know, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, if it was, I actually, it'd be kind of funny if a rock band did it. And um, I mean, Peaches covered that song. And Katie Lang has said in an interview that when she saw Rough Trade perform on the Juno Awards, which are the Grammy Canada, so Canada's pretty progressive, it like really had a really huge effect on her. And apparently, like Carol Pope taught Divine how to sing and like toured with David Bowie back in the 70s and 80s. And I'm just like, how did I not know about this person? Like, she needs to have a biopic about her. If John and you, if John tells you don't know who she is, I've never stumped you once, John, you, ever. You, you have done it on the Pride episode, so I really feel like <laughs> <laughs> But that actually does bring me, who would you think, we've talked a little bit about unsung artists, artists that maybe people don't get the credit or don't know, but who are some of those artists for you guys? So I think he, he's, he's not really an 80s artist. He was a 70s artist. He was also very much a cautionary tale. And I think it prevented a lot of artists from coming out after what happened to him. And that Can is I Joe guess? Yeah, well, sorry. I just ruined it. I just spoiled it. No, but, you said Joe. So I know who you meant. I was going to say, <laughs> is it Joe Bryath? But I ruined it for you. Sorry. Go it ahead. Joe Bryath. I, I, Joe Bryath, you know, was signed to Electra Records. Uh, he had this massive uh, marketing campaign and, you know, it was a combination of him being branded a Bowie clone, 
plus just this overt marketing by his manager, Jerry Brandt, as being the first gay, only true gay superstar. You know, Bowie only plays at being gay. Joe Bryant's really gay. Look out. And it didn't work well. It didn't go over well. And it's too bad because while the first record is okay, there's some good songs on there. The second record, Creatures on the Street, is this beautiful, horribly heartbreaking record about someone that just had everything and lost it. And it's a classic. I, Morrissey name checks him all the time. Um, his story is a sad one. We didn't even get to Klaus Nomi, but they kind of suffered similar fates, being the first high-profile musicians to die of AIDS in the early 80s. And so, you know, if you haven't checked out Joe Bryath, you should. It's on streaming services. It's really good stuff. It doesn't sound like what you think it's going to sound like. Uh, it sounds like this swaggering Mick Jagger type rocker fronting this boogie woogie piano uh, blues band with a little bit of a uh, little dash of uh, glam in there. Actually, if you are interested, Ted, or anyone listening to this on more, there is a great documentary on uh, Jabrath called Jabrath AD. My friend Kieran Turner oh. directed it. And there's Mark Allman's in it. And uh, Jane County is in it talking about Joe Elliott is in it, like talking so much about how much he, he shows up in a Jabrath t-shirt, which Kieran told me Joe Elliott had made because like he couldn't find one. So he like custom made a shirt. So he, but if I'm not mistaken, John didn't, isn't Morrissey, wasn't he kind of instrumental in like getting those records back in print? Yeah, in a very uh, strange way, uh, during the Year Arsenal tour, uh, Morrissey wanted Joe Bryath to open for him, not realizing that he had died 10 years prior. So that kind of started all the interest in uh, Joe Bryath. And it was a long road. It was some legal entanglements, rights issues, etc. But the albums did finally come back out. They're both available on vinyl, which is great. Uh, you know, so I've got to check this out. I, yeah, I very little. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. You you would really like it, Ted. Trust me. So, who is your um, well, unsung so, or unknown? Well, not unsung and not unknown, but somebody I think hasn't got their due for how amazing their career is is uh, Magnetic Fields, Stephen Merritt. I just think he's another poet laureate for like. And ha has an understanding of the gay experience like like very few people do, and I just love their stuff to death, and I just think he should be as big as as he as any of these other artists that we had mentioned. I I thought he was gonna have his big breakthrough moment in like the mid '90s when they put out the album called The Sixths. Wasp's Nest, yeah. <laughs> all these indie artists like, uh, you know, I can't think of any off the top of my head right now, like Dean, Dean Wareham uh, covering uh, Magnetic Field songs. And that's how I discovered them oh, yeah. was that they got me that way wow, in okay. Magnetic Field. So, yeah, 100%. Before we go, since I want to, I use the term lifeline several times to talk about how this music was a lifeline for gay kids. And especially if they were growing up in the suburbs or growing up without really having their own tribe around them. Do either of you want to talk about, particularly you, John, growing up in the 80s, uh, where you grew up? Where did you grow up again? Ohio? Ohio. What town? Elyria, Ohio. Okay. So growing up there, what um, queer music of the 80s? whether it was, you know, openly gay or just sort of like, you know, coded or whatever, what music sort of was life-saving, was a lifeline to you? I love that you use the word queer because it encapsulates things that were uh, overtly gay and yet some stuff that wasn't gay, but was strange and weird like Devo, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, you know, <laughs> huge span for me growing up. My nerdy side, uh, my uh, cynicism towards where humanity's headed, even back then. You can imagine how I feel about it now. Uh, any music that had a band that had a unique perspective, a point of view. And since I've got him here, I have to tell Ted, Book of Love was one of those bands, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the Boy 12 inch single, I Touch Roses. Uh, there was a club called the Nine of Clubs in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, and that was a big night in the big city when you would get in your car on Friday night and drive 40 miles and listen to uh, my favorite DJ, Alyssa, play Sea of Tranquility, an album track. <laughs> I, I remember these things. They're burned in my brain. So I'm really glad you joined us here today, Ted. Uh, thank you. you. I love it. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. I think that's a lovely full circle way to end this. So thank you so much, Ted. A very special thanks to Boca Love's Ted Paviano. Uh, before we let you go, Ted, what are what are the plans for Book of Love coming up? Well, we we were actually going into a hiatus like like before this whole COVID thing happened, but now we're on an official hiatus. But we're thinking about maybe uh, making some tracks, and then we're going to see what 2021 brings us. I mean, we we love getting out and doing those shows, and the fans have been so great to us. I'm going to give him a plug if he's not going to do it. They did a single a couple of years ago called All Girl Band, which is amazing. It sounds like it came from a Book of Love record in 1989. Go listen. I'm going to do that right now. So thank you very much for helping celebrate Gay Pride Month by talking about some of our favorite LGBTQ plus musicians and songs. I've been Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by John Hughes. And we want to thank everyone for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll catch you next time. Was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. <laughs> <laughs>